This is Full Contact Cannabis. First of all, Brad, tell us who you are and what you've been doing the last couple of years. And then we're going to go in to, to start asking you poignant questions. My name's Brad Crafton. Uh, you know, got to this podcast as a friend of Harold Jarbo I met when I went into a hemp extraction endeavor. It's kind of where our relationship picked up. My relationship with cannabis picked up quite young. You know, just like a lot of people, you know, you try it as a rebellious youth, find uh, euphoria, joy, you get to rebel a little bit, and you find out, hey, this helps my ADD better than that speed the doctor's given me. So, you know, I think I'll not take that Ritalin, and, you know, I'll go this other route. When I was at the University of Mississippi, fortunate enough to work on their cannabis farm. By the time I got there, uh, they weren't exactly doing a good deal of research, but it, it was enlightening seeing things done at that scale, you know, outdoors right there in Oxford, Mississippi. I delved into the biofuels industry uh, prior to cannabis, went in pretty deep with that. And when the economy tanked, pivoted into legalized cannabis, worked in pretty much all facets. I kind of got my foot in the door with some friends who had moved to Humboldt County. I had gone there to school for a semester, gone back to Mississippi, got into biofuels. We started an analytical lab, uh, really try, thinking we can make a business out of just running a GC and doing potency tests. And didn't take long to realize that wasn't a business, really. Not that you could start without volume of testing and a myriad of different tests you offer. And this was 2011, 2012, maybe, starting that lab. It kind of blurs together. I remember I got laid off from the Research Institute due to state funding getting pulled with the economic downturn in late 2010, and that was when I kind of pivoted. There was some time I kind of skewed in Mississippi before I jumped in. And when I jumped in, I kind of worked in all facets. I took the lab building out fertilizer facilities, natural uh, and organic, and then full organic brood microbes and, you know, kind of all the different picks and shovel stuff to get in. And once I jumped into the legal thing for the past few years, once basically Washington came online, was close to because I was out there in California, I've gone from state to state doing startup work, going in behind operations that were started with an operator or consulting group that had challenges with achieving pro forma results and the owner sitting there with the big cash burn and they have all these projections and investors are like where's the money raining from the heavens that we thought we were going to get and they bring in a consultant to get them back to pro forma shape and I've gone from state to state, market to market, and as of late, internationally, doing that as different new markets open up and they need optimization consulting. This is the thing about our industry. It really does need context. I mean, we're a young industry and, uh, and people have, I mean, this is one of the things is having a history of doing this and having going to state to state is because it's, it really is important. I mean, people don't understand there has to be a, a basis of knowledge and experience to be able to build upon. And as we go through this, it's like you, you were saying, you know, we, we kind of get drawn into the canvas business and you have to kind of find your niche, you know, where you want to end up at. Was it 2015 that we both got hired by the same company? It was. Yeah. Yeah, Brad and I got hired by the same company that money came out of, I think, Northern Louisiana oil money. The company was formed out in Colorado, I think, initially to do high THC, wasn't it? Correct. Their target, when they, they actually came and uh, found me out in Washington, I was wrapping up a project. It was my first turnaround job I had done. And the owner thought I hung the moon because I took them from 20% of pro forma to 105% of pro forma. He had yet to realize that I had set up the system so well, I was working about an hour and a half a day. And I was like, this isn't going to last forever, you know? And those guys came out there 
with that technology, wanting to do 500 pounds a day of THC material extraction. And I had, you know, to, uh, dipped into those waters, having come out of California, where that was a felonious endeavor and gone into the I-502 space. I had done some CO2 extraction. I was quite intrigued with high volume ethanol of THC. So yeah, that was the intention when they started and hired me. And then I got brought into this company when part of them decided that the new frontier was CBD in 2015, Tennessee opened up. And so the whole thing was, is this company that hired me and Brad, their whole thing was being able to do huge amounts of material, do it efficiently. And so if you can do huge amounts, well, you need huge amounts of material. So the whole thing was to come to Tennessee, which was wide open and grow hundreds of thousands of pounds of, of high CBD cannabis and run it through this machine. And then reality uh, sort of reeled its ugly head. We found out that the machine, the technology that was being sold wasn't nearly as efficient and had a lot of drawbacks, especially because even though you processed it, you still on the other end had to clean it up and there was a bottleneck. And then the other thing we found out was that growing huge amounts of high CBD cannabis was hard. It was. And yeah. what I found was even after we pivoted from that technology and went to a more standardized technology and optimized it, CBD seemed to behave more delicately than THC. I mean, I was used to, in the I-502 market in Washington, you go buy X pounds of THC trim that's at 9% uh, potency. You get it back to the shop, you process it. When you get it ground and milled and ready to go in, you're about at eight. You know, we lose about 12%. We tune that in and get it tighter. But with the CBD flower, not only was it difficult to cultivate the stuff, getting it harvested and getting it in and landed at the shop where they're going to extract, what I would see is 9 to 12% stuff in the field. By the time I got it milled in my facility was 2%. Yeah, and one of the things I think we also, that I kind of want to go into that because unless you've been in high THC cannabis and then go to CBD, I mean, you don't realize that how much harder it is to get an efficient extraction. We had uh, Dr. John. Um, extract Labs was where Dr. John was from. And one of the things that we were talking about, he was talking about how efficient his system was. But then when you ask him about CBD and he immediately went, well, CBD, you don't quite rip as much out as easy and as quickly. And I think that was another thing, you know, when we went transitioned from THC to CBD, there was just all these subtle differences that made THC so much easier. Oh yeah, it, it, it was dramatically so. The, the good part is once we got a handle on that and we found the tipping points, it was what was interesting about the CBD extraction was there was kind of a logarithmic curve to the cohesion and adhesion of that cannabinoid as it flowed through your primary, secondary, and tertiary extract, extraction and refinement that if you could get it above 15% on the input material, the efficiency of cannabinoid retention through the stages really started to go up. If you could get above 20, you were doing cartwheels when you did the math, because to me, it wasn't just what I could arrive at with, okay, what's all the protein, lipid content, a cuticle wax content that's in this plant material that is going to gum things up in some form of that chain of sub-processes to get what the market's buying, which was isolate. I mean, for years, everybody wanted to talk about buying distillate, THC-free distillate, stuff like that. They talked about it, ask you a million questions, what 99.9% .9 of the sales were, were kilos of isolate. So it was all about cannabinoid retention and getting to that product through those stages. And what we found was the farmers that had the genetics and the practices that they could deliver that higher CBD material, that plant had metabolized a whole lot less 
tertiary metabolites such as protein uh, and things of that nature that are going to gum things up. I mean, no matter what, you're going to have the lipid content because that's the currency to make the cannabinoid. So when you take that flowering plant down, it's going to have that certain lipid content. The company that we work for pivoted from cavitation to ethanol because that was the same time the company we work for also started breaking up. And at that point, I decided I was going to go off and do my my thing in Tennessee. But you guys went from cavitation to cryoethanol? It was actually room temperature ethanol. Uh, we wanted to do cryo, but at that point, the investors were real leery because you're right. There was a contingent from North Louisiana and there was a contingent from Dallas and a contingent from Louisiana had uh, brought the technology to the table. When those two exited, the guys from Dallas said, Hey, we got money in this thing. Can you run it and get it toward pencils? You know, the whiz magic cavitation machine, you know, they took that with them. I, I was like, yeah, well, we got all the infrastructure for ethanol extraction. So let's just do some basic batch extraction. It'd be ideal to do cryo. We priced it. At that time, they just, they were seeing the market go down on isolate. And they said, hey, let's just run this with standard room temperature ethanol. And we did, you know, because the cavitation was also heating the ethanol, you know, uh, that caused issues. So we just get to room temperature, things were better enough. That was kind of that transition. It was also during that breakup that I got, some of us in the company got tossed out with the bath water, you know. But the, one of the cool things is that Tennessee Homegrown got a consolation prize that you made sure we got our first rotavap. I do remember that. That 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 was a uh, great time. I, yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Y'all still have that rotovap, by the way. We get, uh, the reason I brought up that rotovap is is that we a couple of years ago we took it out of service because it was only a five, what five liter, what very yeah, five maybe liter. smaller. Yeah, three liter, whatever. So we took it out of service. But here lately, you know, we've been you know Tennessee homegrown. We've been devoting way more time to R and D. So we refurbished the little sucker. We got a new vacuum pump, a new, uh, you know, condenser. Uh, you know, we went and did all the seals and everything. And so now we're using it for R and D, and it has, I, I, you know, like I said, we're only like a five six year old company, but it's our first rotovap, and it's like so way cool to have this thing and to be able to still use it. We kind of got kicked around. I started a little Tennessee homegrown. You did this. And then you kind of went into back to your initial thing of being a consultant. I realized in 2016 that um, this wasn't going to be a well I could draw knowledge from for very much longer. You know, doing room temperature, ethanol extraction, winterization, distillation, and making crystalline isolate was very intriguing and fun process to dial in. But you knew once everything was tuned, my utility was going to kind of wane. And my passion's always really been in high THC cultivation. And the more and more I got into these different operations, my passion is still that but largely targeted for some form of specific value-add extraction, and if possible, done in contract with the farmer, so the farmer can participate in a bit of that value-add uptake, if possible. This isn't something that cannabis invented. You know, that practice is out there in high-value agriculture, medium and low-value agriculture, and there's some players that uh, some bad actors that have kind of turned the dimmer switch on that model to um, evil, you know, and exploited farmers. But I feel with high THC cannabis, farmers can enjoy a great profit margin. That not only drives my passion and interest, 
particularly not just the practices, but the breeding of varieties for that, making it to where the farmer doesn't get locked into a wholesale situation. Because what I find very disconcerting in the high THC market is that the wholesale price is kind of pinned in a region based on that's what people are paying. Uh, but then if it's taken through some type of value add, they can reduce the cost on the farmer. He fresh freezes, takes it to solventless for a high-end product or live rosin for another type of product. And, you know, the cost of cultivation goes down dramatically because he doesn't have to have a traditional drying space and the risk involved there. And you can turn that crop around quicker. So that's kind of just what I went back to. I, uh, fortunately, the group said, hey, can you take a pay cut to stay on and help us get this going after the division? I said, sure, I'm going to split my time and I'll go back to doing some consulting. And, uh, you know, when that kind of waned, then I just continued doing the high THC consulting uh, until I was actually approached by a larger consulting group that had a big high THC project in Canada. I've kind of delved back into hemp after the border closed with COVID. And uh, that uh, consulting group also had some uh, assets in the States here doing hemp seed production, working with hemp farmers. Um, it was a different arm of the company than I was uh, working with, but since I've been bound here in Colorado, you know, I've done a little bit of work with that. Uh, you know. could, we, could we go in, into Canada? Because oh, yeah. one of the things that, there seems to be a huge amount of misconception about how vibrant the market is, how big it is. I started realizing that Canada wasn't the greatest cannabis market in the world. When all of a sudden here about two years ago, I started seeing Canadian high THC companies trying to enter the high CBD space in Tennessee. And you, you go to yourself, if you're making a lot of money and you're doing real well, why are all of a sudden you're going to jump countries and then jump into uh, basically a market that you don't know anything about. And so that's when I started looking into the Canadian market. And there's still a huge amount of people who think that the Canadian cannabis market is very lucrative and is going full guns. And I thought maybe you might could elaborate on that a little bit. Well, okay, I, I can give you a primer on Canada, but first, what you said was about 95% on point, and there's one point that I think there's a factor that you're already aware of that you uh, that uh, you may not be linking up, and it may have been covered by the fellow Rose. Was it Richard Rose, the fellow that was on your podcast last you have to remember in the canadian market they already had an established industrial hemp market that was completely dedicated to the seed market okay just like richard rose explained you know these are different types of farming the conversion time was going to take two to three years dealing with these canadian farmers because i was in the room uh, when big public companies were doing these acquisition things and vetting things and they said, hey, you know about CBD, get in here. And, you know, cause I was there doing the cultivation of large scale THC in the greenhouses, but I got yanked into the meeting and they say, hey, we're going to do XYZ type extraction that has a known efficiency rate. We're going to run material through it that's 0.9% CBD. I say, it'll never work. It won't. And they're like, no, but we don't need that much CBD that, you know, we've done the math. We're going to take a bath on the cost because the market wants CBD blended with the THC. So the net effect of the company is we serve the market. Once the farmers transition, then there's, there's the profit back in that skew. Very reasonable, right? I said, guys, you know, I'm sure they tried. I know they didn't take this guy from Mississippi straight on his word, uh, but the, the cannabis plant did not just decide to make no other tertiary metabolites. 
there are going to be big molecules, big macromolecules in there. They're going to gum up every bit of your refinement before well, you I can get it. Well, I really wasn't talking about the CBD part of it. Oh, what I want to well, talk about is Canadian THC. Okay, no problem. It's just to me that going to Tennessee was a natural fit because they could bring in the isolate and put it well, into a no, formulator. No, I think what it was is they were trying, the people I talked to seemed to be that it wasn't working in Canada, so we're going to go try to do CBD. And that's what I got. I got from more than a couple of them is that the, that the THC market that they got in and thought was going to be lucrative wasn't. Ah, yes, those were the uh, people without the provincial contracts. And so let's delve in. This is a perfect segue. Let's delve into how the Canadian THC market works. All right. When you're a licensed producer, LP, right, then you can produce and sell into the systems. Okay. Just like any entity, the federal government will give you a license. But then at that point, you have to get a place to be. You need a local municipality that is okay with the parcel of land you have found that will zone it for the use case and will go down the whole road with you for all the stuff you want to do on this big mega operation that no precedent is set for. Okay, that's, that's, that's one big thing. Once you have this stuff, you have to sell it to somebody. And each province rolled out how its stores were permitted and opened differently. There are three provinces where you have large enough population to where you can really build a brand. All right, you've got Ontario, Quebec, and British Columbia. And to a certain extent, Calgary's a market, but I'm unfamiliar with it. And there are probably others, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, that I'm unfamiliar with as well. But when you look at it and you think market development, population, proximity to population, things of that nature, those were going to be the real lucrative markets. British Columbia already had a thriving black market that was very much tolerated that largely was supplying its population. So British Columbia operators were largely serving people who wanted to go to the stores. And since in Canada, you can ship to other provinces, they were the boutique good stuff, right? So then the market becomes Ontario and Quebec. Ontario, I'm not intimate on all the exact details, but initially they gave a timetable that was very optimistic for the number of stores that were going to be opened up in given areas. Then also Quebec went the other way and said, we're going to have provincial stores. They're going to be state run. We're going to issue annual contracts to the producers to where we buy at a fixed guaranteed price on an annual basis from these producers. The entity that I was working with was in Quebec. And they were fortunate enough to secure a very healthy allocation to be purchased by the province of Quebec. So the takeaway, the, I mean, guaranteed price per pound for the next year. And as long as you hit your marks in October, we'll renew you for the next year type thing. Very advantageous for business stability. Now, the unfortunate thing is, since they were right across the river from uh, Ontario, they say, hey, let's also serve that market. So they had some challenges because Ontario did not roll out the retail locations. So all the supply that was thought to be going to be turned into revenue in Ontario was just kind of building up, you know, and it's really, truly based down to a license and permitting of the actual pull demand on this stuff. You know, so, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how much you can grow. There has to be a store ideally well, but, with parking spaces. Okay. Well then how, how did Canada overproduce so much? Because everyone thought Ontario was going to open up licenses. 
they thought that there was going to be the possibility to export to other countries because the Canada law had that language in there. Trouble is, the country on the other end had to work out their law too. So it's going to take an interval of time for that to sync up. And there was also a lack of understanding of how sophisticated, tolerated the black market was and how tough it was going to be to beat their quality and price. The black market is still very strong. And when I say black market, it's hard to envision this as an American, but their black market is looks a lot like our legal dispensary market. The big name uh, websites that first popped to mind when you would look to to find a recreational or medical dispensary near you will link you to dispensaries that when you call them, they, th this is a black market operation and it's very well run. There's a business storefront. They like have a location in a strip mall. There's a really nice individual that answers the phone and updates you on the delivery. There's a guy that pulls up out front that looks like he's in an Uber black, very professional pelican case with vacuum sealed labeled flower that's quite nice. And it's 90% the cost of what is at the stores that aren't really proximate to anybody. And then also there's the mail order uh, marijuana contingent online. And this isn't even dark web. This is stuff you can easily find. It may be on Reddit. I don't know. I'm not too intimate with it, but they call it mom's mail order marijuana. And you go on, you make a purchase. It feels a lot like real legit online shopping and it comes right in the post. I mean, when you add all these things up, there isn't enough money coming in to buy the product. And just like any market, the Canadians had stumbling blocks on getting these operations going and consistently producing quality. Even the ones known for quality, I mean, if you were from Seattle and were there, it would seem like it lacked in quality and if you were from california you would push it away and kind of cluck your tongue we noticed down here and basically a bloodbath took when so many people invested into the legal companies and the stock prices of these things went up you know a hundred times over earnings and now they're tumbling back to space i mean back to earth from space and it seems like um very few of these companies are actually, because that was the thing we got when we talked to Dr. John was, there was sort of like this happy face that all the companies he was connected with were doing fine. Out of the myriad of Canadian high THC companies, what percentage are probably doing well? Do you have any idea? I do not, um, really, because labor has hit them so hard like everything else. They've all been challenged by a lack of revenue. It's a startup industry. I think it's a gradient of doing well. I mean, it's kind of like saying, you know, in 2016 to 2018, if you were gonna ask how many people who are in the Washington I-502 market are doing well, well, what do you define as well? Like, I haven't cashed out all my 401k, you know, and these, <laughs> I mean, these are individuals where we're talking about largely bigger operations in Canada, but you know, the same remains the same. Starting up in this space in a new market, bringing an operation online, shelf-stable packaged goods to market, this is not simple. It's multivariate complex, it takes a lot of time, a lot of money. Um, so with their borders being closed, how is that affecting Com like just interstate commerce in the country itself? Obviously, I'm not an expert. Um, I've been locked out pretty much since March 13th. Mm -hmm. when I, That was when I last left my apartment in Ottawa. And 
uh, now I don't have an apartment anymore. Uh, you know, uh, I couldn't even get up there and get my possessions. Luckily, uh, we got a cop, mailed a colleague a key, got him to go up and get, you know, papers, documents, personal stuff out. But uh, yeah, like essential commerce, like, you know, DOT trucking freight is still going on. I have been reading in the news that uh, dual citizens uh, that have U.S. plates that drive across every day to go to work are dealing with a good bit of harassment, some vandalism of their vehicles, you know, kind of very anti-Canadian behavior. Um, the greater groundswell of sentiment in Canada says the U.S., is not handling COVID in a way that makes us uncomfortable to the point we want to lock off commerce. I think that'll take a lot, man. It, it'll take a lot. I think the border's going to stay open for real commerce. I mean, I have a work permit. If I wanted to go to Canada, I could have gone. I would have had to quarantine for 14 days on both sides of the trip. Since, uh, you know, COVID had caused enough of an impact to the business that our contract had been canceled. It just didn't seem prudent to do that. It's like, okay, let's focus on what's getting through this COVID crisis and what's next after it. Basically, you're re reinventing yourself. Aren't we all? Well, <laughs> I, you know, to me particularly, because, yeah, you know, um, previous to that project, I'd been an independent consultant. And one of my good friends and colleagues uh, that was another consultant had originally gotten the Hexo contract. And I came in to their company to run that. Being a solo guy's tough doing this consulting thing. It really is because all the clients have the same problems. They tell you similar lies and they hide certain things and then getting them to implement things. So having a group to where you can really fully support people to ensure they know exactly what you need to do or what you require them to do and clearly how to do it in multiple ways, SOPs, one-sheeters, uh, in-person orientation over Zoom and phone call support, uh, supply chain logistics, you know, it, it's really better done with the team and working that big project in Canada uh, really showed me that. I don't know if going back to being a lone wolf consultant, that really doesn't sound attractive to me at all. It, it doesn't, you know, if I, I was going to do something on my own, I'd probably honestly go into content creation. You know, if you can do it without travel, uh, you can actually decide at what level you can fully support your project and endeavor in doing it. But working with the team, you know, I think all of us are at the point of looking at what do we really want to be doing and how are we going to do it? Because if we're continually interrupted by this virus, like me, you know, end of June, 1st of July, I was flying back and forth to South Carolina. You got to really think about uh, what you can do without having, having the rug yanked out from under you. Well, I want to talk, this is a segue. Also, hasn't the nature of the business changed? Because it seemed like the infatuation was on large scale. And I'm just going to ask you point blank, does large scale cannabis work? Oh yeah, it works very well. Um, then how can I ask you a question? Then how come so many large cannabis companies are going out of business? Because they don't have the right structure, methods, people, personnel, the training. All of it really matters. I mean, okay, I'll, but that's uh, but that's I'll, my point, though, Brad. In order to do that, you have to have all those things, and it seems like it's extreme, increasingly hard to be able to put that together. It is. We're in the definite valley of available, experienced, operational talent right now. And in time, we will catch up. You know, the proper training methods, the universities. But, but, uh, but, and, and I totally get what you're saying. But does the but, market support it? That's my whole point, is we're doing these large-scale things here because of the, the, the holy grail of if we scale up, we'll get economy. 
but I'm not seeing any large scale successful companies hardly. Yes, you're right. It's because they cannot bring all the bits together. So why do they continue to do it? That's a whole nother question. Um, and I don't know, and to give you examples, I want to name two specific examples. They're both in California. I've done work for one and I've consumed product and followed the other. Uh, the first, the one that I have actually done work with is Connected California. Um, I did a bit of work with them when they were bringing on their large scale indoor grows that are true commercial scale, 80,000 square foot indoors with maximized indoor canopy, all the right air handling, true industrial, you could scale it ad infinitum. And they produce with their genetics, they, they invest in the right genetics and they value and have the best genetics and or at that top high echelon i'm not saying they're the number one i don't want you know don't come at me in emails or something here like but they're they're world class and their operators uh the group of guys that i worked with these guys had known each other for upwards of two decades they had surfed together for that amount of time they had been skateboarding together cultivating together these guys were a solid tight team they knew exactly what they're doing very intimate with the plant their retail their social media's tight their supply chain's tight yeah. and another one that falls into the exact same category down south in la is the jungle boys it's kind of cliche to reference them now because so many people have over the years but what Ivan has built there is large scale. He has scaled it to the point that he wants to at this moment, and he will continue to scale it as long as there's business desire there. Um, but that, but that, how do you do that? How do you continually, that's, that's the part I, I really am it's frying my brain here. How do you just infinitely scale? Is there not a point to where you start losing your productivity and your efficiency? Ask Toyota. Well, they started, they, no, they that, started but, making... Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. There's a difference between cars, which are made, and things that are grown. Exactly right. I'm not saying that there's a direct comparison. If I was going to make a direct comparison, it's chicken farming. Because cannabis, if you actually look at it, the metrics of it, it's spatial and moving the plants from cuttings all the way to harvest is a lot like chicken farming. So that would be my direct comparison. But by Toyota, I mean all the elements of Kaizen, the Ooh. Toyota way, all of that. And you build in another layer on top of it. Like I, uh, I'm a mechanical watch enthusiast. I like Seiko watches in particularly. And if they're high in brand, they have Grand Seiko. Now, to be the watchmaker to work on the Grand Seiko movement takes years and years and to be that person. Right. Okay? Which is my point. I'm and not saying we can do it quick. Well, well, but no, but okay. Then the next question is, what kind of quality can you do on that large scale? It's completely dependent on the genetics and the consistency of the irrigation strategy. So I mean, it has I, nothing to do with the people that are running it? No, no, no. I'm not saying that. What I'm talking about is when you scale, you have to minimize touches and contact, okay? But, the, what, the way that you minimize touches and contact so that every touch and contact is meaningful and adds value, it's not to repair lack of maintenance damage, okay? So if you have the right genetics, and you have the right irrigation strategy, then you're not the little Dutch boy putting the finger in the dam and trying to troubleshoot and get them to bounce back. Your workers are well-trained and adding quality with every touch. So you're talking about industrial grade canvas. Yes, and I, I really think that you can achieve 85% of the quality of boutique and industrial. Now, here's a caveat. I'll give you this one too. I'm not saying that you do 100% of your cultivation under 
one roof. Now, let's go back and reference Dr. John, because I really enjoyed his podcast and how he discussed his production approach to CO2. Is he making a 400-liter vessel? No, he's not. He has identified the size vessel that he can get his extraction out. Now, I bet you he could put a lot of those together, and he could tell you how many is the maximum to put in one building, and materials handling is probably the limiting factor there, and then you would want to have a distributed network of them. That's the real question to be answered, is how big do you go in one module? And it varies from crop to crop, um, you know, so we haven't yet determined that. So how do you see this going? Is it our craft cannabis going to be basically pushed to a small little niche market and it's going to be taken over by industrial cannabis? No, not at all. I think what we're going to see in the information age with the doubling rate of information and the speed of communication, you're going to see something very analogous to the beer industry in a compressed amount of time. The craft and, and I fully believe this because I've seen the balance sheets and I've run the numbers and I have a statistically relevant data set to say there's two scales that work and there are two scales they'll survive. Boutique and well done commercial. The middling ground, it's just really tough. You either need to figure out how to scale up or how to scale back to something you can do to level up to the boutique grade. Because if you've got commercial hitting 85% of a boutique grade, then you better be hitting 95 to 97% of boutique grade to command a premium in the marketplace and the cubic meters of jewelry case space in the store. I think that's a great sort of place to try to wind this daggone thing up. What's next for you, Brad? What are you working on? I'm working on a great project right now in, uh, in South Carolina. Um, and I've actually reawoken my hobby growing at home. It was what really originally got me into this uh, kind of passion before it was an industry, was growing my own home grow. And I've got some strains I've bred over the years from different things that were gifted to me. That's really been a lot of fun. Getting to the end of it, it's really shown me I need to do a value add to my product because I don't want to smoke my own home grow. It's awesome, but I like solventless hash oil and dabbing it. So what I'm going to do is to continue to support uh, consulting endeavors and uh, kind of see what the world brings to all of us next. And as my passion project, I'm going to really dial in some solventless extraction as a way I see it as a leg up for the Colorado farmers that um, are battling a low wholesale cost and needing to differentiate themselves in the market. So I think I want to get back uh, to my roots because I originally did a lot of bubble hash extraction to make full melt solventless back in like 2014 before Jarbo and I met. It was kind of pinnacle where I got in California. So I'm going to take my home grow crop and in my spare time, because we have plenty of it, um, mm -hmm. I, I'm going to crank through and make some good solventless. I'm going to see if I can move my old processes of doing bubble up to kind of like what the new guys uh, are doing for this really nice solventless ash. Brad, would you like to tell everybody how they can get a hold of you and reach you and your company? Anybody just wants to reach out to me individually, uh, look up on Instagram, brad.crafton uh, at Instagram or at brad.crafton, however they do on Instagram. And just shoot me a message there. You know, I don't post uh, like work-related type stuff on there. It's mostly me and the pets and views out on a walk in Colorado, that type thing. So don't feel like you found the wrong one. Just shoot me a message. Hey folks, we're doing a denim to a full contact cameras podcast that we did with Brad Crafton. Since we did the initial podcast, there's been some developments in Brad's life that kind of is a basically a comment on where the industry is right now. Can you tell us about what you're doing and what's happened in the last 72 hours? Yeah, basically I've been a consultant flying around from city to city operation, operation, 
you know, doing consulting, and all of that business has just kind of run out of gas. The whole consulting industry as a whole, you know, is having to reevaluate. I'm actually, uh, like I talked about earlier uh, in the main podcast, uh, going to roll out a solventless brand. I was just kind of kicking the idea around before, definitely doing it now. Going to be partnering up with some great guys in Colorado that I've known for a long time. <clears throat> Brands going to be called Soli, as like Soul with a Y. Got a nice little vibe to it. I'm sure we'll have uh, presence to that. Working with some good Colorado farmers down in the Pueblo area. They're having they can grow more great cannabis than they can dry it. Could you explain the product that you're so excited about making? Yeah, definitely. So. Solventless hash is essentially a way to concentrate trichome resin glands where the cannabinoids are and as much of the terpenes, aromatics, and flavonoids as you can in a product that can be consumed um, through inhalation, eating, baking with, that type of thing, uh, a generalized concentrate without CO2, butane, fancy machinery, pressures, chemicals, processes, distillation, all that. This is real good, old, simple, traditional hash making with uh, modern technique and knowledge, uh, ice water, uh, freezers, and a rosin press, and that's about it. And then are you going to do dry sifted? Are you doing ice water? Are you going to freeze dry this stuff before you do it? Just so people can look forward to the product a little bit more. Go into what do you think is totally, the... Totally. Uh, definitely not going to do teeth. Too much cellulose gets mobilized with that. Um, it doesn't get the flavor that we need, right? It's going to definitely be ice water. And it's definitely going to be fresh frozen and processed. So this is going to be a product that retains as much of the living cannabis plant essence is humanly possible to be done in a shelf-stable way. You'll chop down the fresh plant. All of the non-resinous plant material will be removed at that point or several days before to minimize that plant taste to it. Fresh uh, cannabis will be chopped, lovingly prepared, placed in a freezer overnight, processed just with ice water and mild agitation. To isolate, not keep. Keep implies a dry sip, a specific term. This is going to be taking all of the resin glands and all of your water solubles that are mobile at that cold temperature, the good ones, terpenes, flavonoids, aromatics. Not all that nasty water solubles you mobilize with ethanol extraction that make it be black and green goo. So you get a cake batter product that looks uh, almost pure white, slight hint to it, no co-product, just lovely taste, and anything that has a slight plant co-product mobilization, we will then heat press in a uh, certain way to not mobilize that plant product and then create a high terpene extract that uh, will be more like a liquid, the high terp mm -hmm. product, and a more kind of racy euphoric feel with a medium cannabinoid effect. What you're describing is a terribly upscale specified product. It's a really handmade, high quality product. At Tennessee Homegrown, that's part of our thing, is doing something really high grade. How do you see that marketing opening up to something that's a, a lot of labor and just a few people can really appreciate all the nuances that you're doing with your product. That basically can be plotted logarithmically with the maturity of the market and the, dis and the uh, disposable income and years of consumption. Because it's one of those things that if you have access to it and if you can afford it, you end up consuming it. I think that the markets are Denver and Seattle the places that were the first track markets. There's good jobs around, a thriving economy. There's a surplus of good, well-grown cannabis. People can grow more cannabis than they can dry. So you have the access to the material. 
you have access to people who understand cannabinoid processing, and you have a market that can afford the product. I think just like any new market, I like to think about it as 2% of the market will consume a product that fits into that category. So I think when you bring out a brand like this, you can estimate that your market within the greater markets, 2% of the rent market in a given mature city. So I'm targeting Denver to start, most likely Seattle second. Is this driven by what you perceive as a, a good market to be in, or is this a labor of love? It's both, actually. It's a labor of love that I thought I could do and make a business out of and really enjoy. And when I started putting pencil to paper on it, I realized it was quite a good business. Brad, you got into the industry because you like growing and you like to plant. You got into consulting because it paid you a good living. And now it seems like you're going full circle and you're going back to basically what got you in the industry in the first place was the love of the plant, love of the product. Exactly. It came out for me in sitting there depressed as hell. And, and I'll give one little caveat. I got into consulting not because it was going to pay me a lot because I'd have access to more cannabis plants. But it was my only way that I was going to be able to have 20,000 plants. My first consulting job, I saw the guy was running 21,000 plants and couldn't run it right. I felt bad and I wanted access just like, you know, a young guy about to get his driver's license and sees a fancy sports car and longs to drive that car. I wanted to drive that Grove and I did. And I went in as a consultant and I took over the Grove and then one to the other to the other to bigger till I was up in Canada running a massive consulting job, working directly with the head grower uh, that was a true horticulturalist and had affected a huge change on that business. I was really inspired by working with that much infrastructure and that many plants and it got yanked away from me by this COVID thing. And I mean, I, I spent my first two weeks in lockdown maniacally making Gantt charts and Excel spreadsheets for what I was going to do over the next 12 months because I thought if we all just stay home for a few weeks, this is all going to blow over, right? Once I realized that wasn't the case, I went back to some seeds that I'd made in 2015 from a line I'd spent six years breeding uh, in the mid-aught years, and I sprouted those seeds. I started growing them and doing my home grow just as I can as a Colorado uh, resident. We did six plants. I felt a reinvigoration of passion really in my soul for cannabis that I had started back when I had developed that strain. And picking that one was the best thing I ever did out of a whole tassel of seeds that I had I could have picked was going back to the one that was my first passion project I had done. This sounds exciting. Guys, can't thank you enough. And good Bye. luck, Brad. Bye-bye. <laughs> Y'all be good. Thank you. All right. See uh, Full Contact Cannabis is a Tennessee Homegrown and Uppercut Media production. You can find Tennessee Homegrown on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website, tnhomegrown.com, for more background and information covered in our podcast. Full Contact Cannabis is created by Jarbo, the old hemp farmer. Audio recordist, Abby McCullough. Post-production services provided by Uppercut Media and can be reached at uppercutmedia.com. <laughs>